Welcome to The Mushroom Show, the one place where you need to be if you want to stay on top of all the cool things happening in the world of mushrooms. My name is Tony Shields, this is episode 29, and in this episode we're going to be talking about an unveiling of a new state mushroom for California, and no, it's not the one that you're thinking of. We're also going to be trying to figure out if mushrooms came on the same asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. There is some new research on that front that is quite interesting to look at. And finally, we're going to be looking at a few functional mushroom farms, kind of doing some mini virtual tours so you can see how functional mushrooms are actually grown. So if you like mushrooms, if you like the mushroom show, please go ahead and hit that like button. It really does help the channel grow. And if you want to see future episodes of the show, go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. Let's jump into the show. Kicking off with a little piece of mushroom news. Now, it only makes sense that as mushrooms are getting more and more popular, that the most populous U.S. state California would also consider getting an official state mushroom. And I know that California has a bit of a history with certain mushrooms, what with the 1960s Haight-Ashbury district and the history of psychedelics there, but the new state mushroom is not Psilocybe cyanescence, Psilocybe azurescens, Psilocybe semilanciata, any of the other psilocybin-containing mushrooms that grow in the Golden State. This is the new mushroom here, and before I tell you what it is, I want to see if you can guess the species. Now, I'm sure some of you know what this is right away. You're already already yelling at your screen, and you can see some very obvious characteristics that define it already. The first thing to notice is the weird pattern under the cap. And if you were to say that these were gills, that is definitely tempting and an easy mistake to make, but it wouldn't actually be correct. These are instead ridges, which become pretty obvious at second look. You can see that they aren't distinct gills at all like you would see on a true gilled mushroom. And these ridges just kind of run down the stem of the mushroom or the stipe of the mushroom instead of just ending under the cap. This mushroom is also yellow in color, which is another important characteristic, although color alone is never really a great identifier because it can vary so much. This mushroom is of course a chanterelle, but not just any chanterelle. This is the golden chanterelle, also known as Cantharellus californicus, and it can produce some absolutely monstrously sized fruits. Many chanterelles that people are used to picking in the mountains of Colorado, for example, like Cantharellus siberius, are much, much smaller. But the golden chanterelle in California, again, can get absolutely massive. And apparently, unlike many other mushrooms that grow big, like porcinis or big oysters out in the wild, the golden chanterelle is often not bug ridden, so it can make for some pretty good eating. This kind of mushroom is definitely something to celebrate, and I can see why California decided to make it the official state mushroom. But what does it really mean to have an official state mushroom? Is it suddenly going to be protected in the state of California? Does it even need to be protected? Is it going to be on the flag all of a sudden? Well, I don't really know what happens other than the fact that it's just been officially declared a state mushroom, but the bill is really quite formal and does elevate mushrooms as a whole. I'm not going to read all of the text, but here are some of the highlights. It reads, Mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of fungi, ancient and long-lived organisms that sustain life on Earth in a variety of ways. Mushrooms are important for both wildlife and people. Their extensive below-ground networks nourish forests and grasslands via symbiotic connections with plant roots. Since time immemorial, diverse human cultures have treasured and utilized mushrooms. Increasingly, we look to mushrooms and fungi for innovative environments solutions, ranging from the creation of sustainable materials and food sources to the implementation of low-cost bioremediation of toxic waste and contaminated soils. Already you can see this seems to be more than just declaring an official state mushroom, but really putting pen on paper explaining how important fungi are to the state in general. Continuing on, it says California is home to an uncounted diversity of mushroom species. Recognition of a state mushroom honors the manifold cultural, economic, and ecological roles mushrooms play 
display in California. Cantharellus californicus, known as the California golden chanterelle, is a commonly collected edible mushroom found beneath California oak trees. Long loved by Californians, scientists recently recognized it as a unique endemic species. Naming Cantharellus californicus as the official state mushroom of California will promote appreciation, education, and the study of mushrooms in the state. Now, I don't know if this is gonna cause a bunch of Californians to run out into the woods and go looking for this tasty edible, the golden chanterelle, but it is important to keep in mind that for the totally uninitiated, there are some potential lookalikes that are poisonous that you might want to be aware of, specifically the jack-o'-lantern mushroom, which has a scientific name that's quite the mouthful. It is Omphalotus olivicens. I do not know if I'm saying that right. Probably easier just to call it the jack-o'-lantern mushroom, and it's a really good example of why common names might be useful. But again, if you know what you're looking for, as you can see, it has a completely different look altogether. It's completely different species altogether. It's usually more orange and has true gills instead of those false gills or ridges that we were talking about of a true chanterelle. But remember, with mushrooms, you can have fun finding them and hunting for them even if you don't plan on eating them and in that way you don't have to worry as much whether or not you might have a lookalike and you don't have to worry about potentially eating a poisonous mushroom. Now finally California might be the most recent state to have an official state mushroom but it is not the only state to have an official state mushroom. There are four other states for example Oregon has another chanterelle called Cantharellus formosus otherwise known as the Pacific chanterelle which was way ahead of California giving it the state mushroom designation before it was cool to do so way back in 1999. Next was Minnesota, who had the gumption to claim the world-famous morel mushroom, Morcella esculenta, as their state mushroom. And as we talked about on the last episode of The Mushroom Show, Texas has a state mushroom. This is the unique Texas star fungus, also known as Coriactus giaster, which officially became a state mushroom in 2021. And finally, Boletus edulis, weirdly claimed by the state of Utah just last year in 2023. So it does seem to be a bit of a new trend, with states all of a sudden officially adopting state mushrooms. I don't really know what that means, but it'll be interesting to see how many more states officially adopt mushrooms in the near future. Moving on to our next segment, talking about the never-ending quest to try and better understand the origins of one of the world's most fascinating substances, psilocybin. And many have wondered over the years, where did psilocybin actually come from? How did it evolve? It's interesting that there's a substance that is so important to humans today, and we still don't really know that much about its history. And it's something that's pretty fun to think about because historically people have come up with some pretty wild ideas. One obvious idea is that psilocybin somehow evolved as either a deterrent to stop people from eating these mushrooms or as an attractant to attract people to eat these mushrooms and spread the spores. Another idea is that it was a deterrent not for humans but simply for bugs and for flies to stop them from consuming the mushroom. A really fun one is that this is some sort of ancient alien technology that came from space and is an attempt by extraterrestrials to communicate with humans. It sounds crazy, but definitely fun to think about. And since spores can exist in space, you must admit there is a non-zero chance that psilocybin mushrooms did come from space. And there's some new research that does show evidence for the first time that psilocybin showed up in the geological record about the same time as the asteroid that was responsible for killing the dinosaurs. Which doesn't necessarily mean that they came on that same asteroid, that mushrooms did in fact come from space millions of years ago, but it is a bit of a game changer in terms of our understanding of the evolution of this compound. 
This is a study that I'm referring to that was just recently published and it's titled Phylogenomics of the Psychoactive Mushroom Genus Psilocybe and the Evolution of the Psilocybin Biosynthetic Gene Cluster. A lot of words there, but it's being touted as the largest genomic diversity study ever for the genus Psilocybe, which is the group of mushrooms known for containing psilocybin and psilocin. And in the study, they looked at 52 different species all containing psilocybin and 80% of those species had never ever been sequenced before. So a a lot of new information here. And it's kind of astonishing to me that we have such an interesting group of mushrooms with such a fascinating compound inside of them. And yet in general, we still know so little about it. So what is the purpose of studying these gene sequences? What can we actually learn from it? Well, according to one of the study's authors, they say, we've shown here that there's been a lot of change in gene order over time. And that provides some new tools for biotechnology. If you're looking for a way to express the genes, to produce a psilocybin and related compounds, you no longer have to rely on only one set of gene sequences to do that. Now there's tremendous diversity that scientists can look at for lots of different properties or efficiencies. Which sounds very similar to the research that we talked about that was recently done in Australia, this idea of designer shrooms and its importance for strain development of different psilocybe species. But what was more interesting to me from what came out of this study was this idea that psilocybin evolved as far back as 67 million years ago. And again, this ties back into this idea of where did psilocybin come from? How did it evolve? How did it come here in the first place? Which should really change the way that you think about mushrooms, right? They are ancient. They are relics. They've been around for 67 million years ago. That's multiple orders of magnitude older than humans. And there are very few things that you can draw a straight line from the time of dinosaurs to today. And apparently psilocybin containing mushrooms are one of them. And it also totally negates this theory that psilocybin mushrooms evolved just for humans, either as an attractant or as a deterrent. And it really makes you wonder, since psilocybin emerged 67 million years ago, was it just some random mutation that just happened to produce this compound, that just happened to have these profound effects on the consciousness of a species that didn't even exist at the time? What is it actually doing for these mushrooms? And here again is where the timing of the emergence of this compound is interesting. If psilocybin emerged around the time as the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs or shortly after, that was the time of a never ending global winter, a period of atmospheric haze and terrestrial darkness, which killed a huge majority of all life on the planet. But there are at least two groups of species that thrived in these conditions. Mushrooms, which don't require light for photosynthesis and thrive on decaying matter, and terrestrial gastropods, basically slugs, who are heavy predators of mushrooms, which leads to the so-called gastropod hypothesis, which says that the reason psilocybin emerged was perhaps anticlimactically as a simple deterrent for slugs. And 67 million years later, it just happens to have all these profound implications on human consciousness and a potential new model for mental health care. It's hard to know for sure, but it's pretty cool to think about how new research is still coming out, how new technology is allowing us to better understand these things and help us get a more complete picture of psilocybin mushrooms. Moving on to our next story. Now we almost take for granted how easy it is to get functional mushrooms either in powder form and capsule form or now as we're seeing more and more added as a functional ingredient to other foods. But mushrooms don't grow on trees. 
or do they? I thought it'd be fun to kind of do a how it's made mushroom edition and give you a virtual tour of two of the most important functional mushrooms that we see today, reishi and cordyceps. I chose these two mushrooms because they are two of the most popular mushrooms in the world and are very much different in the ways that they are grown, harvested and processed. Maybe the only thing that they do have in common is the fact that they are both super powerful functional mushrooms used daily all over the world. Now, mostly what mushroom cultivation is, is an attempt to try and mimic the natural conditions or mimic the natural ways that mushrooms grow in the wild, to try and mimic that mushroom life cycle and move the process along. So when mushrooms grow in the wild, it starts and ends with spores, which turn into hyphae, which turn into mycelium, which turn into pins, which turn into mushrooms, which produce spores, and start the whole cycle over again. Mushroom farmers will try and manipulate the cycle and jump in wherever it makes sense. They'll usually skip the spore step and start instead with known cultures, which can just be thought of as mycelium, mushroom mycelium that is known to produce good results. That mycelium is then typically added to a grain to make spawn, then that spawn is added to some sort of substrate, then the substrate will be fully colonized and eventually you can produce mushrooms. This is the very basic way that mushrooms are cultivated, but as you'll see with different species, there are lots of different ways to manipulate this process. Now let's jump into some of the specifics, starting again with reishi, also known as the spirit mushroom, also known as the mushroom of immortality, and the species that is typically grown is Ganoderma lucidum. Again, there there are lots of different species that are known as reishi, but the one that is typically cultivated and used for supplementation is Ganoderma lucidum because it has high levels of active compounds, but also because it produces nice, big, beautiful fruiting bodies. It is a wood-loving mushroom that is super tenacious, and it naturally grows on logs and stumps and trees, so it only makes sense that when trying to grow it on a farm, you would grow it on logs the same. And that's basically exactly what is done. Real whole logs are inoculated with reishi spawn. They're allowed to colonize and then buried slightly underground. What this does is kind of helps maintain the moisture in the log as the mushrooms grow and is a very natural method of cultivation. The moisture retention is very important because the process of growing reishi like this takes a very long time, almost a full year from inoculation to harvest. You wouldn't want them drying out. Now reishi is a slower growing mushroom anyways. If you compare it to something like the fleshier mushrooms like an oyster for example, you can almost watch it grow. It'll grow in less than a week from a pin to a full-size mushroom and then degrade if it's not harvested. Whereas a reishi is way, way slower. It's a woodier mushroom and it will start to grow in these little finger-like projections that eventually conk out into a big, beautiful fruiting body. But still, even for reishi, this particular method of cultivation on logs takes a really long time. Compare that to a different method where you grow them indoors on supplemented hardwood sawdust, for example, you could be harvesting from colonization in a few short weeks. Now, the environment in which reishi grows is very important as well. All mushrooms like humid environments and reishi is no different there, but believe it or not, reishi can also benefit from the heat and is typically grown in warm temperatures, basically outdoors in greenhouses and shade houses, which can get upwards of 30 degrees Celsius. They certainly don't need the heat, but they don't seem to mind it at all. These outdoor, indoor shade houses create the absolute perfect environment. It's hard to explain, but it just really feels mushroomy in there. It's warm and 
it's humid and I guess full of spores. Now you obviously can't do this style everywhere. You need the right natural conditions to have these greenhouses and shade houses, but where that works, it works really well. And along the same vein, what's really cool about this method of cultivation is that you can kind of grow it with the seasons. The reishi logs are quite literally planted in the fall. They're allowed to grow over the winter. And then in the summer, you can harvest these giant dinner plate size fruiting bodies. But typically the fruit is not the first thing that is harvested. Because another interesting thing about reishi is that the spores are also highly coveted for their functional properties and reishi produces a ton of them. I've shown this before, but it's worth showing again because it's so crazy. Just look at the insane amount of spores that end up on top of the fruiting body. That is billions and billions of spores. Just so cool. They can be collected in different ways. Sometimes there can be like cardboard tubes that go over the fruiting body and collect the spores. Whereas other times they can be grown in these shallow greenhouses with large plastic sheets underneath with the fruiting bodies just kind of poking through and then they can collect the spores off of those sheets. Now, as I mentioned earlier, reishi can be grown in other ways as well in faster cycles using supplemented hardwood sawdust. Here is an example of an indoor reishi farm that uses synthetic logs to grow reishi. And the benefit here is to be able to modify the substrate and make it more nutritious and help the reishi grow faster. It can also be grown in the typical mushroom bags. Once the sawdust is colonized, you can just cut slices in the bag so that the reishi can go through, or you can cut the top of the bag off so that the reishi simply grows on top, or you can just leave it in the bag where the high concentration of carbon dioxide will prevent that conking out of the fruiting body and force it to produce these long, skinny, antler-like fruiting bodies. Now, one final thing about reishi is that most commonly it's cultivated for supplementation purposes. So it's grown to kind of a dinner plate sized fruiting body, but it can also be grown to a giant sized fruiting body for decorative purposes. You might've seen in some of our videos, a gigantic thing hanging on the wall behind me. That is a reishi mushroom fruiting body, believe it or not. It's over two and a half feet across and weighs about 11 pounds totally dried. Now it takes some special techniques to grow reishi in this manner, basically continuously folding successive conks into each other to look like one large fruiting body, but it's highly coveted and I got to admit it is super cool as a decoration. The next one is probably one of the coolest mushrooms that I can think of in terms of cultivation, and that is cordyceps. And I guess the thing that first needs to be discussed when talking about it is what species of cordyceps. Because you might be thinking that cordyceps is parasitic, it only grows on bugs, it can only be wild harvested high in the mountains of Tibet, and that would be of course cordyceps sinensis, which yes, has all of those features, but luckily there is another version of cordyceps that can be cultivated, which is known as cordyceps militaris. In the wild, it does of course grow on bugs, but it can be cultivated on non-insect substrates, which is how it's typically done. It's something that looks really easy, but it is not. It's actually a pretty difficult mushroom to cultivate at scale. Because the thing with cordyceps that needs to be managed really properly is the strain. We talked about for Solospi cubensis, how it's really important to develop strains that have all sorts of different properties. Well, cordyceps, you need to really manage that strain and continuously clone it, or else it will just stop fruiting. But once you do have a strain that's very prolific, you can propagate the mycelium, you can propagate liquid mycelium, and then add that to a sterilized grain, quite often soy or rice, but many other types of grains will work, and the cordyceps will grow on that grain. You can see in this farm here, the substrate is a mix basically 50-50 of rice and soy, which was sterilized in these shallow round buckets. Now, the cordyceps culture is used to inoculate the grain after it's been sterilized, after the grain has been sterilized, and then it's covered 
in a thin plastic with a filter around the edge that allows for gas exchange. When you're growing mushrooms in a sterilized manner, this is always important because mushrooms need a lot of fresh air, not only when they're growing, but also when the mycelium is sterilizing a substrate. It needs to be able to breathe. Now the cordyceps will rather quickly consume the grain and will then be taken into fruiting conditions completely different than what we talked about with reishi. Cordyceps prefers much cooler temperatures. So where reishi happily grows at 30 degrees Celsius, cordyceps does better at around 13 degrees Celsius, which does feel really, really cold. It's almost like a refrigerator in these farms. It is also not grown with natural light, but instead under strictly controlled blue light. This combination of blue light and cooler temperatures forces the cordyceps to grow slower. And you might ask like, why would cultivators want the mushrooms to grow slower? Wouldn't they want to grow them faster and produce a lot more? Well, the reason is because when the cordyceps grows slower, it ends up having a much higher concentration of active compounds, specifically cordycepin, which is the compound that most people are looking for in cordyceps in the first place. Now, what's fascinating about this cordyceps farm is just how incredibly reliable and dense the fruit are. The buckets are just completely canopied with beautiful, perfect Cordyceps militaris mushrooms. Now, the one thing that needs to be made clear with Cordyceps, especially when talking in the context of using the mushroom as a functional mushroom, is that the fruiting body, or the stroma, that cheetah-looking thing, is actually harvested separately from the grain. Just like how you would pick a mushroom off of a wood-based substrate, the same thing here. You harvest the mushroom off the grain-based substrate and just process the mushroom. The reason this is important is because some supplements are made from just the grain and mycelium without the fruiting body of the mushroom or perhaps using it altogether, which results in something that is really high in grain, totally different than a pure fruiting body only supplement, which would be much higher in beneficial compounds. Now, this farm that I showed you here is something at scale, but a lot of people do grow cordyceps mushrooms on a much smaller scale, quite often using like mason jars and just putting a substrate at the bottom and growing the whole thing contained in the jars. It's a good way to grow cordyceps, but I guess it's not as reliable for a scale production. I hope you enjoyed those two virtual tours. In general, how mushrooms grow is absolutely fascinating to me. It's one of these things that got me interested in mushrooms so long ago. Whether they're growing at scale or whether you're just growing them on a small scale at home, it's still a super fun process to watch and it just kind of brings you closer to the mushrooms, which is really cool to me. And that's it for this episode of The Mushroom Show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for watching. Again, if you like mushrooms, if you like The Mushroom Show, please go ahead and hit that like button. It really does help the show get out to more people. If you want to see future episodes of the show, go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next one.